Good morning, everybody. Okay, we're going to have a pop quiz, all right? And I'll start with the children answering them, the questions, and if they don't get it, I'll let the adults try, okay? How old was Adam when he died? (laughs) He's right, yeah. No, more than that, yes. Well, he's 900s, 930. Okay. All right, so that's that's the start. Okay, second question. Did Adam know Noah personally? Yeah? No? Yes, Mr. Robertson? No and yes. Well, actually, it was no. I was just teasing her. Um, sorry? Did somebody have something? Okay. He died in 930. I'm going to take numbers here today, and I know we don't do this, but it's just easier in my brain. I don't like doing backwards numbers. When you do BC, you have to count backwards, and I've never been good at that. So I'm going to take the beginning of history and Adam's creation as the first year. That makes better sense to me. Okay? So we're going to call it uh, AC, in the first year AC, after creation. Okay? And then we'll do the AD stuff later, but AC is what I'm going to call it for now. So he died, Adam died in 930 AC. Noah was born in 1056. Okay, here's an easier question. Who did not die in the Old Testament? Okay, you got it. She stood up. Enoch. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Elijah. Right. Okay, both. But in this particular context, we're looking at Enoch. But Elijah was the other one. Okay, kids. What was the name of the person who lived the longest in the Bible? Yes. Methuselah. Very good. Okay, better yet, how long did he live? Yes. Say again. 969 years, you're right. Okay, here's a question for you you might not know the answer to. What happened the year Methuselah died? Charlie, you're not a child. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the flood. I think you heard that, but that's right. The flood came the same year. All right, here's another question. Did Noah know Abraham or Abram personally? Well, it's yes or no, I know, but it was close. It was really close. He didn't know him personally. Noah died two years before Abram's birth. But that surprises a lot of people that, Abram, uh, that Noah lived that long, all the way up to almost Abraham's birth. Abraham had a son. I'm sorry. Um, That's not true. Noah had a son whose name was Shem. Shem is the head of what people? And Semitic people. Okay. Yeah. Which would include who today? Jews and Arabs. Yeah. Okay. How many people? Of each type of animal did Noah take into the ark? Be careful on the answer in this one. Children, first. Yes. You got it. Very, very good. Two of every unclean animal and uh, seven of the clean animals. Very good. Okay. How much of the earth was covered by the flood? I'm not even going to talk to you, Daniel. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry? The whole earth. All right, very good. Well, okay, we're going to look at, uh, that was the pop quiz. So this is going to be more and more like school today than you would expect. But we're going to look at some math in the Bible as well. There are actually some very interesting math problems to solve in chapter 5 of Genesis. And so as we're going through our study of Bible characters, we come to a list, sometimes called a genealogy, a list of when people were born, how long they lived, and when they died. 
And most of us come to passages like this and go, oh yeah, a bunch of names, a bunch of dates, and go to the next chapter, okay? And there, there are some really fascinating things in these lists of genealogies. It's interesting to me that the Lord spends so much time in going over genealogies in the Scripture, both here in Genesis, and he does this several times in Genesis, in Chronicles, uh, in, in the Gospels. Um, he goes through them again. And so there's several things we can learn from them. One of the things that, that we learn from them is that when we see them in the New Testament and they match up with the ones in the Old Testament, that the Lord is saying something to us about the authenticity of his word. And that's important for us to know. That if God is speaking about those things in the New Testament, he's verifying or vouching, if you will, for what the Old Testament says. Very important point to know and to, and to believe. I've been through Genesis, I can't tell you how many times in my life, but I went through it a different way this time. And uh, I learned some things that I didn't know. And so I hope to share some of these things uh, with you today. Um, so we, in, in chapter 5, uh, we have a genealogy. And so I want to look at a couple of um, uh, facts here. Um, so as I mentioned, let's take a look. At, what I'm going to do, first of all, is pass out some, some, uh, fly, or some uh, printouts here. And maybe I can get a couple of guys to, to do that for me. Why don't you take half of those, and you can take half of those, and you can take half of those, or whatever. And find something. Yeah, great. I think so. If not, oh, maybe not. Maybe you may have to share some of them. There's about 40 or so of each. So maybe, you, uh, yeah. So we probably need to share some of those. If you need uh, extra copies, we can always get some at the end. All right, for those of you who have it already, let's start with the sheet that looks like this, just the numbers, all the numbers on it, and I'll, I'll try to explain to you what I've done here to make it make sense. So if you look at the first person on the uh, sheet, it's Adam. And um, because, I, as I said, it's too confusing for me to go back and talk about B.C. and, and all that sort of stuff, we're going to just call this... Um, AC, okay, after creation. So in the first year, Adam wasn't born, but he was created. And so we know from already from the quiz that he lived to be 930 years when he died. And so his death year was 930 after creation. Everybody understand that? No? Boy, it's going to be a long math lesson. <laughs> All right. So the year of his death was 930. The next line shows Seth. Seth was not Adam and Eve's first child, as you remember. They had Cain and Abel first. We looked at them last week, and uh, we saw that Cain killed his brother, Abel, and Cain was cast out and uh, was a wanderer and a vagabond all of his life. But it says after that that Adam and Eve had another son, and his name was Seth. It tells us clearly in chapter 5 that Seth was born when Adam was 130 years old. That's where I get the number 130 from. You see that on your sheet? Okay. So it was 130 after creation, the year 130 after creation, that Seth was born. And he lived for 912, so that means that he died in the year 1042, okay? Now, what the chart, you'd have to look at all the numbers on the chart so I, to, to get all this other information. So I put together 
this sheet, and I want to explain how this sheet works. Okay? Take a look at the bottom line here. Okay? And so I put Adam, his life starts at zero, and it goes to 930. That's the end of that line there. Okay? If you follow straight up that line, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight more lines, you come to who? Okay, so um, uh, so well, if you go to Lamech, okay, so go up to Lamech. Um, basically, what happens if you look at the chart? You can follow the number and 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 uh, and, and know the exact number of of years that that line represents. Here's what happened: Seth died. 14 years before Noah was born. So he lived all the way through to the time of Noah's father. Okay? So just so you can kind of see how this, this uh, chart or this graph works. Um, Enosh was the next one. He lived until Noah's 84th year. Canaan was the next. He lived until Noah's 179th year. And so on. As we go through these characters, we see that there's an overlap of lives. And this is important to know because what it tells us is that what God told Adam and Eve, they were able to pass on to generations all the way up until Noah's father. And then Noah's father, of course, was able to tell Noah. And then as we, as we pass by Noah's life and uh, we take a look at, at his life. So he's the one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. He's the tenth one. So Noah's life, if you're to take, go to the end of his life in, in just a little past the year 2000 and go all the way up to Abram's life, he lived almost until the time of Abram, Okay. So he lived. Two, he died two years before Abram was was born. Again, what it shows us is that God had His witnesses on the earth. He had people who were able to explain um, what God required of men uh, all during those hundreds, um, even thousands of years. Okay. So as we mentioned before, the first two. Children born, Cain and Abel. One of the questions that always comes up, where did Cain and Abel get their wives? You ever heard that question? Usually it's asked as kind of a, uh, a mockery, like, well, huh, it doesn't say it in the Bible, so the Bible must not be true. Well, who was reproducing after their own kind at that time? Hmm? Adam and Eve. So that's where they got their wives from. They got their, their wives from Adam and Eve, who were reproducing children, and it says that in the scripture, sons and daughters, and uh, they married their own sisters. And you say, oh my goodness, that's terrible. Well, the genetic pool was a little different back then than it is today. And uh, it was not a problem for them to do that, uh, as would be the case today. All right. Um, so, Seth. Let's talk about Seth for just a minute here. He's one of the, the fellows on this chart. Seth is the child of Adam and Eve. As I mentioned, he was born in the year 130, and he lived until 1042. Seth lived so long that he lived when Adam was alive. He lived um, during the time of his own son Enosh, his grandson Canaan, his great-grandson Mahalalel, his great-great-grandson Jared, his great-great-great-grandson Enoch, his great-times-four-grandson Methuselah, and his great-times-five-grandson Lamech. And then he died just 14 years before Noah was born. Lived a long time. Now, in the middle of all of the names in chapter 5, we have a character named Enoch. And if you notice on the chart, Enoch, his birth year was 622 after creation. And he only lived, how long? 365 years. Okay? 
He was just a young kid in comparison to the others who were living into their 900s and almost 1,000. So here he was uh, at uh, 365 years, and he did not die. It says the Lord took him. So let's take a look at the passage uh, before us. Genesis 5 and beginning with verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. This is an amazing account of a man who loved the Lord and the Lord took him so that he did not face death. At this point in the history of man, uh, the, the population is growing and man's sin is becoming more and more evident um, as the years go by. Now, there's not much said about Enoch in Genesis, but there is actually more said of him uh, in the New Testament. But it says what it does say about him is revealing. Twice in that passage, it says Enoch walked with God. And then again, verse 24, and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him the word walked is full of meaning it is used in the scripture in both a literal meaning where I'm walking alongside of somebody on a street or something like that but it's more often used in a figurative way where I walk with somebody I am in fellowship with them I think along the same lines as they do in fact the Bible asks the question can two walk together unless they be agreed When Abraham was 99 years old, God said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And so in that statement, God is telling us what a walk with God is like. It's to be blameless before God. It's to be holy before God. If you remember the history of Israel, God said over and over and over again to the children of Israel, walk um, before me. And what he meant by that in the context of the passages, it meant to follow his laws, to obey him, to love him with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and to do what he had commanded them to do. That was what it meant to walk with God, to walk or to follow his laws. He said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 32, Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. And then he told them that if they did not walk in his ways, he would bring calamity upon them. He would bring judgment upon them. He would take them away into foreign lands, and they would be held captive there. And so God was after them to walk with him, to be uh, uh, walking in agreement with him. It says of Enoch, Enoch walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God in our lives? What does it mean to walk with God? Well, the word means to behave in the right way before the Lord. It means to make every effort to follow the Lord. It means to know what God wants you to do and then do it with all your might. Let me ask you a question. Are you walking with God. There were many men in Enoch's day who knew God. They knew about God because God had revealed himself to them, but they weren't walking with God. And there are many people today who claim that they are believers. They claim to know God, and yet they're not following after God at all. They're not walking with him. What is it like in your life today? Are you walking with God? There's an interesting study in the New Testament. I'm going to give you some verses Maybe you can do some homework at home. We started this off as a class. We might as well introduce homework to it as well. Let me give you some verses to write down. I'm just going to touch on them briefly. And uh, take a look at it and ask yourself the question as we go through each verse, am I really walking with God? Walking with Him. 
Here's what the New Testament has to say about walking with God. In Romans 6, 4, it says that we should walk in newness of life. In Romans 8, 1 and 4, it says, Walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In Romans 13, 13, it says, Walk properly. You say, what does that mean? Well, it's good. He tells us the answer. He says, Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Walk properly. In 2 Corinthians 5.7, it says that we are to walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 5.16 and 25 says, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are commanded to walk in good works. In that passage, if you remember, we, we always memorize uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says that we're not saved by works, but we're saved um, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And it says you're not, we're not saved by works. And we stop there at the end of that verse 9 and say that's the, end of the, that's the end of the chapter. That's almost the end of the book. No, it's not. Verse 10 tells us that he... Uh, saved us uh, so that we might do the good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we should walk in good works. God has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your life. He has a path that he wants you to walk down. Are you walking with God? In Ephesians 4.1, it says, Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what it means to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In Ephesians 4, 17, he says, Don't walk as the unsaved walk. How do the unsaved walk? The unsaved walk in the futility of their own minds, being alienated from God, following after their own lusts. Don't walk as the unsaved walk. In Ephesians 5.2, it says, walk in love. Next, walk as children of light in Ephesians 5.8-11. In fact, walking as children of the light means that we are to find out what is acceptable to the Lord. We are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful, uh, unfruitful works of darkness, but rather we are to expose them. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, Walk circumspectly, walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Philippians 3.18 tells us that we are to walk as the apostles walked. In other words, Paul says to the Philippians, look, follow our example. Walk the same way we are walking. And um, that's what he means by that in Philippians 3.18. Colossians 1.10 says, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. In Colossians 2.6, it says, walk in the Lord. And what does that mean? Well, it means to be occupied with Him and His ways. Dwell on the things that, you, that God would want you to do and dwell on the, the way God would want you to live, the way you would be. And it's, it has to do with your character, walking um, in the Lord. Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. In other words, walk in such a way or live in such a way that um, you're a good testimony to unbelievers, redeeming the time, he says again. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, it says, walk worthy of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, walk to please God. 1 Thessalonians 4.2, or 4.12, pardon me, 4.12, and 2 Thessalonians 3.11 says that we are to walk properly. What does that mean? Walking properly. Well, in the context, it says this. Don't be a busybody. Mind your own business. That's what he's talking about there. 
Uh, don't be waiting around for the perfect job, but get a job and work hard with your hands so that you'll be uh, so that you'll lack no good thing. The idea there is that there were there were believers who were just hanging out, doing nothing. And what he was saying to them was, get busy, don't be idle, walk properly. First John one seven says, walk in the light as he is in the light. Second John one six says, walk after his commandments. Third John one four says, walk in the truth. In fact, John writes and he says, there's no greater joy in his life than to see his children walking in the truth. And then finally in Jude 1.18 it says, walk not after your own ungodly lusts. Now I gave you the verse references. It's, it's hard in a passage like this to go over every little detail of what it means to walk w- with the Lord. But I gave you the verses so that you might take them and do some homework at home and see those verses in the context. What does it mean to walk with the Lord? All that I said is what it means when we read that Enoch walked with God. Do you walk with God? Now, there's a prophetic warning. The last verse that we ended off with was Jude chapter 1. Well, actually, Jude has one chapter. Jude 18. Jude verse 18. And uh, Jude reminds his readers that the apostles had warned there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. He says, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. So Jude is telling us that the apostles warned us that mockers would come in the last days. But did you know that all the way back in Genesis, in the life of Enoch, that he warned the same thing. He, he issued the same warning. And that's what it says in Jude. It says um, that Enoch prophesied about these wicked men back in his generation. And in making the statements, uh, Enoch was actually pointing forward 6,000 years to our time and to our generation, to the time right before Christ comes when men would be flagrantly uh, ungodly again the people in his day were ungodly but he was pointing forward to this time that we're living in right now and this is what it says in jude 10 but these these people these mockers who would come in the last days speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts in these things they corrupt themselves woe to them for they have gone in the way of cain have run greedily in the error of balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying behold the lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him these are grumblers complainers walking according to their own flesh and they mouth great swelling words flattering people to gain advantage but you beloved Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. So 6,000 years ago, Enoch prophesied. And he prophesied for the church. Now, the church was unheard of in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. It wasn't known until the New Testament time. But Enoch foresaw or prophesied about our coming day and ungodly men who would worm their way in, speaking evil of the Lord Jesus. In Enoch's day, God was preparing to destroy the earth with a flood because of the evil that persisted in his day. But Enoch looked down the corridor of time 
and saw that the same evil that God judged in Noah's day would also reappear in our day. And in fact, Jesus said that as well. He warned that in the last days, the, the times or the people or the population would be very similar to uh, the days right before the flood. God is patient. And God is long-suffering. But patience by its very nature has a terminal point. You understand what I mean by that? There's an end to it somewhere. Patience is not patience if it doesn't have an ending. Patience has a terminal point. It has a beginning and it has an end. And when his patience and long-suffering are fully satisfied, he will destroy the earth. Not with a flood, but with fire. That's what he tells us in the New Testament. In the days of Noah, the Bible says that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Jesus said it will be like that in the last days. Does it sound like our generation? God spared Enoch from the ravages of the flood. God took him before he destroyed the earth with a flood. And the Bible tells us that he was translated. He was plucked away. Or in the New Testament words, he was raptured. God took him. Enoch is a type. He's an illustration of those like Enoch who will not taste death but will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air before the judgment and the wrath of God is poured out upon this planet. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read this, uh, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We've mentioned this before. Faith, to be faith, requires what? It requires the word of God. Okay? To say, well, I just have this feeling that something is going to happen. A lot of people have feelings. I just have this feeling that when I come to the end of my life, everything is just going to work out. God is just going to accept me. I have this feeling, and it's a good feeling. But it's not a true feeling, and it's certainly not faith because God doesn't say that. So faith, in order for it to be faith, must have the Word of God. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the Word of God. And if you believe God's word, that's faith. By faith, we believe, uh, we believe God. Faith requires a word from God. Faith, how do we, how do we get faith? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. And so as the word of God is preached or is taught, or you share it or communicate it with friends or family or others, as people hear the word of God, God can use his word in people's hearts, and they go, you know what? That's right. I believe what God is saying. They believe God, and they're saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It's apparent to me from uh, what we see in Hebrews 11 that e as Enoch walked with God, God spoke to him, and he told him about a time that was yet future, a time when the Lord would come with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all the ungodly. But God's testimony of Enoch was that he pleased God. So what does that mean? If, if Enoch pleased God, that means that he was not ungodly. He had faith in God. God had, had uh, saved him. He was pleasing to God. So God says to Enoch at some point, I'm going to come with ten thousands of my saints and I'm going to execute judgment on the ungodly. And Enoch is standing there listening, and he's saying, but I please you, Lord. I'm pleasing to you because I have faith in you. That's what the Word of God tells us. So if that's true, that I'm not one of the ungodly, then I must be one of the saints 
who you will bring with you and 10,000 others with, with you to execute judgment on the ungodly. I believe that's what it's talking about in, in um, Hebrews 11. Enoch, would he be among the 10,000s of saints? The scripture says, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. He took God at his word and God raptured him as a type of what he will yet do for the church. The Bible says, believers, that we shall not all sleep. That means we shall not all die. Wow, that's great. Because so far as we looked at Genesis, there's been death and death and death and death. And he died and he died and he died and he died. And all through our life experience, we see people dying. In fact, the whole history of the human race is one of death. Only two people we read about in the Old Testament who did not die. Enoch and Elijah. But for 6,000 years, people have been dying. And yet the Bible tells us that we shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. Do you believe that? If you believe what God says, you have faith. God says it. He says that those, when Jesus Christ comes back for his saints, he will come uh, from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, and the dead in Christ, those who have already died, but they died as believers, will rise first. Then we who remain and are alive at his coming shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Wow. That's just like Enoch. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Do you believe it? That's what the Bible says. Faith in God. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Let me ask you this morning. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Do you have faith in Him for your salvation? Will you be taken home to heaven if He comes today? And that, that shout is uh, echoed throughout the land. Will you be caught up together with the saints in the clouds? Do you know him? Are you ready? Or will you be left behind with the ungodly waiting for the Lord to execute judgment upon you? You remember that when Enoch was taken, uh, it was the year... Let's go back to our chart for a minute. Nine eighty-seven. The year the flood came was 1656. Over 600 years later. And so all the people who were born, all the people who were, who were left, were waiting judgment. They're waiting execution by God uh, in, the, in the flood. Those who are left behind at the coming of the Lord will also be waiting or... or um, experiencing God's judgment upon them. It's serious, serious business. The Lord means what He says and will do all that He has promised. And so I want to encourage you this morning that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not sure of your relationship with Him. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Trust in Him before it's too late. That's what Hebrews eleven six says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Seek the Lord while he may be found, that you may escape the judgment that is yet to come. Now, there's another issue with Enoch that's worth noting. Enoch had a child when he was 65 years old, and he called the child Methuselah. We know him as the oldest man who ever lived on the face of the earth, Methuselah. There's um, numerous sources of, of um, uh, scholars who, who believe that uh, Methuselah's name, some say his name means man of the darts, and that's a literal translation of, of the roots of that word. But many go back to the roots and say, you know what, it really uh, has more to it than that. And this is what um, numerous scholars have said, that it means when he dies... It will be sent. When he dies, it will be sent. When did Methuselah die? The year of the flood. And so the year of the flood, it will be sent. 
What is the significance in his name? The year that he died was the year of the great flood, the great deluge. When he is dead, it, the flood, will be sent. And so as Enoch named his child that year, I think he looked forward to the time, and God must have told him, and said that in the year he dies, it will be sent. It tells us something also about God. In 1 Peter 3.20, we read this, Once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. The long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. Here in the fifth chapter of Genesis, we have illustrated for us the long-suffering of God. How long did God wait patiently for men to repent and believe in him? Just during the years that Noah was building the ark? Well, certainly he waited a long time then. It was about 100 years. But I think it's more than that. I think we see the long-suffering of God uh, evidence from the birth of Noah's grandfather, Methuselah. The Lord was saying, in effect, I will have patience. I will extend my long-suffering and my mercy the length of this man's life, Methuselah. Is it not interesting to you that Methuselah lived the longest of any man? That God extended his life one year after the other, after the other, after the other. To me, it's, a, it's a, an amazing demonstration of God's grace, of his long-suffering, of his patience. He outlived all of his contemporaries. He outlived his own son. And it was God who continued to extend Methuselah's life year after year after year as he patiently waited for men to repent. His mercy was slighted. His grace was scoffed at. And the Lord ultimately had no choice but to destroy the earth with a flood because of the sin that was running rampant on the earth. Enoch, it says in the Scripture, Methuselah's um, father, preached to that wicked generation. It says in Jude 14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied concerning judgment upon all. The population at this time had grown exponentially. I don't know, and the Scripture doesn't tell us exactly how many people lived on the earth at this time. But it doesn't take much imagination to, um, to uh, believe that there were possibly a billion people on the earth at this time. And if you look at, and that's take, here's how I come up with a calculation like that, and you can do your math later. But if Adam and Eve, let's just say they had eight children in their entire lifetime, and those eight children had eight more children and in their entire lifetime. And you just keep calculating it that way. You come up with a number of 1 billion, 73 million, and so on. There were faithful preachers among them. But as the population grew, so did the wickedness of the people. And God says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It says in Genesis that the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And so God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And eventually, Methuselah died. I'll tell you, that was a comprehensive test of God's patience and God's long-suffering. But long-suffering and patience have to come to a conclusion. And upon his death, God poured out his wrath upon the earth and destroyed every creature that has breath in its lungs. And he destroyed the, the birds, the animals, and all of the human race except for eight people. One of the greatest disasters. Somebody said this was the second greatest disaster up until this time. You say, what was the first? The fall of man. Very good. Very good. The fall of man. Had the world provoked God? Yes, we did. The people of the earth knew about God because God made it evident to God made Himself evident to them through His creation and through the preachers who lived from Adam to Seth, who, whose life expanded all the way until Noah's day. And so Noah's father was a contemporary of Adam, and Adam had to have taught his sons about 
the blood sacrifice that was given back in the Garden of Eden. He must have taught them about God's promise to send a deliverer to uh, crush Satan's head. Adam taught about the truth of saving faith. Enoch preached about judgment to come. Lamech, Noah's father, spoke about the curse of sin. Noah knew about animal sacrifice. And we know that because after he got off the ark, the first thing he did was what? Offered a blood sacrifice. So he knew about it. And Noah himself preached to his generation. And every blow of his hammer on that ark was testimony of the fact that God was about to destroy the earth with a flood. We also know, according to the Scripture, that the Holy Spirit was striving with men at that time, um, that generation. He empowered um, Noah to urge his generation to trust in the Lord. And yet the world mocked him. They scoffed at him. They scorned him and did not believe. But it wasn't because God didn't warn that generation. God did. Has our generation provoked God? Yeah, I'll say. The Bible says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He's talking about our generation. We are without excuse. As a matter of fact, the more we study, the more we find out about the universe, the more we find out about the the, the planets and the solar systems and, and the universe, we probably have more information than any generation before us giving us evidence of God, and we refuse it. There are none so blind as those who will not see. And that is true of our generation. They are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Sounds like the headlines of our current papers. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do they do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And in Second Peter we read this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous lot. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Whew. God knows 
how to, t- how to deliver the godly. He says that. But he also knows how to punish the ungodly. And just as he has done in the past to the fallen angels, and just as he did in the past to, to um, Noah's generation, and just as he did in the past in Sodom and Gomorrah, He will also punish those of the present generation who continue to live in their ungodly practices. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But He is just and righteous and must punish the wicked for their sins. Hell is real. Hell is real. When will He punish the ungodly? When will his patience run out? When will his long-suffering end? I don't know. It can't be long. And maybe he's waiting for you to come to him this morning and trust him as your Lord and your Savior and have your sins forgiven and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Maybe he's waiting for you. Right here and now, God calls you to repent of your sins to trust Him and Him alone for your salvation. He says this, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. How can He forgive you your sins? How can He do that? God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. Jesus was crucified. He was punished for your sins. His blood was shed on the cross for your crimes against God. He was buried but rose again the third day as evidence that God accepted his death on the cross as full payment, satisfaction, for your sins. When you repent, you turn away from your sin and you turn to Him. You turn away from your evil ways, your wicked thoughts, and you turn to the Lord. And the Bible says He will have mercy on you and He will abundantly pardon. This is what pleases God when a man or a woman simply believes Him, simply takes Him at His word and says, Lord, You've said it. I believe it. I am a sinner, I am condemned, and I deserve everything that I get. Have mercy on me, a sinner. If you don't know Him as your Savior, trust in Him today. We'll end uh, with just a prayer today, and then the meeting will be over. Lord, as we consider the account in Genesis of the Days that led up to the flood, Lord, we acknowledge that we live in a generation just like it. Lord, it is a generation that is full of sin, full of wickedness. Every imagination of the thoughts of our heart are only evil continually. And Lord, if you were to come and destroy the world today, we deserve it. But Lord, we thank you for your mercy, your patience, your long-suffering as you wait in this generation for the last one to bow the knee and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We pray, Lord, that it might be today. And we just ask, Lord, if there are any here who still have not bowed the knee, that today they would do so and trust the sinner's Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.